This episode is dedicated to the men and women of our armed forces and first responders. Whether you are currently serving or have served in the past, you are appreciated. It is because of your courage and sacrifice that we enjoy the freedoms and liberties we hold dear. And I, for one, appreciate every single one of you for protecting what many of us take for granted. So thank you. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. John Potter was a prospector who considered himself strong, tough, and experienced enough to enter the valley. And so he did. But he never came back. One year later, he was found by a search party. His head was missing. But then, what do you expect will happen when you step into the Valley of Headless Men? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. I'm taking a few days away from creating new episodes so I can spend some time with family and also prepare for next month's fourth anniversary of the podcast, along with the upcoming Overcoming the Darkness campaign to raise funds to fight depression. So this episode comes from the Dark Archives, and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as the newer episodes. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. It's one of the most mysterious places in the world. Despite its pleasant climate, this region remains uninhabited. No one wants to live here because of fear. People say something dangerous is lurking in the valley, something that must be avoided. A few people who had the courage to enter the valley never came back. They met an awful fate. The Nahani Valley is located in the southern end of the Mackenzie Mountains of Canada. The valley, which covers 250 square miles, can be found about 550 miles west of Fort Simpson on the Mackenzie River of northwest Canada. 
many tales have been told about unusual events taking place in the valley. Some have even claimed that somewhere in the valley there is a secret entrance leading to a hidden underground world. Due to many unexplained and frightening events, the Nahani Valley is a place that Indians fear and do not enter. People unfamiliar with the valley's frightening history could easily get the impression it is a beautiful place well worth exploring. This part of Canada is situated above 60 degrees latitude, meaning it becomes very cold here in winter. Animals seeking warmth during cold winter months take refuge in the Nahani Valley because it is much warmer there. The valley never becomes as cold as the surroundings. Hot springs and sulfur geysers keep the valley warmer than the surrounding areas by about 30 degrees year-round. A warm mist covers the valley, giving it a unique visual appearance. Despite its pleasant climate, the valley remains uninhabited. People are aware of the unknown and unseen dangers that appear to control this place, and everyone avoids this particular region. Trappers will not follow any animals into the valley, nor trap in it. Various Indian tribes like the Ojibwes, the Slave, the Dogribs, the Stony, the Beavers, and the Chippewyans have all one thing in common – they refuse to enter the valley. So why do humans avoid this mysterious place? Why do people who live close to the valley not take advantage of its warmth instead of remaining in much colder places? The reason why this place is still uninhabited is because the valley is known as the Valley of Headless Men. It is believed that there is plenty of gold in the valley and some people went inside in search for precious treasures. When the gold hunters never came back, people started looking for them. Finally, search parties found their skeletons, but their skulls were missing. Someone or something had killed the gold hunters and cut off their heads. While looking for the missing people, search parties didn't notice anything else unusual. Still, some hunters who came back refused to visit the valley again. They say that the utter loneliness of the country, the eternal mists which makes you see things which are not there, along with the feeling that something is watching you, was just too much to take again. Several people have been decapitated in the Valley of the Headless Men like, for example, William and Frank McLeod, two brothers who were searching for gold in the valley. An important aspect which should not be neglected when investigating these mysterious deaths is that the creature responsible for the killings was not looking for food. It is almost as if the heads were cut off as a warning not to approach its territory. John Potter was a prospector who considered himself strong, tough, and experienced enough to enter the valley, and so he did but he never came back. One year later, he was found by a search party. His head was missing. Closer examination of the corpse revealed he held a cartridge in his hand. We can imagine that he saw something that was going to attack him. He took his rifle and wanted to fire, but he didn't have enough time. Potter was not killed for food because there was plenty of untouched food in his bag, Rumors of dangerous creatures living in the Nahani Valley spread, but some people refused to believe in these stories. One man from Yukon Territory said he did not fear the Valley of the Headless Men. He boldly set off into the valley 
he never returned. Two years later, a search party located his remains. He still had cans of food in his knapsack, but his head was gone. Other men who had the courage to enter the valley met the same fate. Their headless corpses were later discovered by search parties. Frightening stories about the valley have been told ever since the place was first inhabited around 10,000 years ago. Many tribes said from the beginning there is something evil in the valley. Indians also said the place was inhabited by spirits, demons, and the place was haunted. There is something in this valley that is hostile and feared by everyone. According to the Indians, there is an unseen, unknown force that must be avoided at all costs. Is it possible that whoever is responsible for decapitating people is living underground? It's very difficult to determine if those who died encountered violent subterranean beings or if some unknown beast lives hidden in the valley. People say they have seen mysterious lights in the valley and unusual aerial phenomena. It's difficult to say what lies behind these mysteries. To this day, it's not known who or what is responsible for the beheadings and disappearances in the Nahani Valley. People who encountered this strange and dangerous creature did not survive, and we have no witnesses' reports to analyze. The Valley of the Headless Men remains as dangerous as its name sounds, and it is a place that should be avoided. There are many interesting stories from all around the world of people who encountered strange beings that created a home for themselves deep underground. Perhaps most fascinating are the accounts of ancient civilizations that live in marvelous subterranean cities. There are also numerous underground complexes connected by tunnels built by civilizations which must have been familiar with advanced engineering and science in order to create such sophisticated subterranean systems. Stories like this make us wonder, do we really know what's hidden beneath our feet? In the Cuyahoga Valley in Ohio, there is an eerily deserted place known as Helltown. Unlike the ghost towns of the West, this Midwestern area is particularly unique because it doesn't look all that old. Although some buildings bear the features of early America, the rest are distinctly 20th century. The clear no trespassing signs posted throughout the town are certainly modern and official. There's not a soul to be found in this place, but there are still remnants of the lives the former residents left behind, including an abandoned school bus. The town is surrounded by dangerous roads that seemingly lead to nowhere, but it is the church that seems to have inspired its ominous name. The white building in the center of Helltown is emblazoned with upside-down crosses. The locals all have their theories. Some say the church was a place of worship for the Satanists who populated Helltown, some of whom say still lurk around the closed-off roads hoping to ensnare unwitting visitors. Others say the town was evacuated by the government after a toxic chemical spill that resulted in bizarre mutations in the local residents and animals, with the most deadly being the Peninsula Python, a snake that grew to enormous size and still slithers near the abandoned town. Even the old school bus, 
is the center of a dark legend. Supposedly, the children it carried were slaughtered by an insane killer, or in some versions of the story by a group of Satanists. The superstitious claim that if you peer through the vehicle's windows, you can see either the ghosts of the killer or his victims still sitting inside. Helltown, Ohio is, in fact, an abandoned town whose deserted buildings provide plenty of fodder for creepy photos, or at least they did until they were all torn down in 2016. While what really happened to the town's residents is quite disturbing in its own way, most of the urban legends have rather mundane explanations. The church does, in fact, bear upside-down crosses, but these are a fairly common feature of the Gothic Revival style in which it was constructed. Ghost hunters may have actually gotten a terrifying glimpse of a man or child inside the old school bus, however, they were not the spirits of murder victims forever trapped in limbo, but rather a man and his family who temporarily lived there while their house was being renovated. There is still some local debate about whether the chemical spill actually happened, but the lack of hard proof regarding the Peninsula Python has not stopped locals from celebrating Python Day. Even Helltown's spooky name is the result of, rather than the source, of all these urban legends. Helltown is actually just a nickname for a part of Boston Township in Summit County, Ohio. The residents of the area were indeed forced to abandon their homes by the federal government, but not because of a chemical spill or supernatural cover-up. With national concerns about deforestation in full swing, in 1974, President Gerald Ford approved legislation that allowed the National Park Service the power to expropriate land, theoretically to preserve forests. While the idea behind the bill may have been good intentioned, it was bad news for residents living in areas designated by the National Park Service for new parks. The area that is now dubbed Helltown was earmarked for the new Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and the people living there had no choice but to sell their properties to the government. One disgruntled mover scrawled his own gloomy epithet on a wall. Now we know how the Indians felt. My story takes place on the night of Wednesday, February 21, 2018. We had just moved back into a house seven months after renting it out to a couple who literally were hitting each other and having full-on screaming matches since they moved in. And the first time Tim and Elaine came back to the house, they said it felt dark and oppressive, though the atmosphere in the house has gotten better since. I've been fighting a cold that just won't leave me alone for almost two months now. On Wednesday evening, I had fixed myself some medication, effervescent tablets, and I carried the glass to my room where I had other meds as well. Once I finished the medicine, I put the glass down on the chest of drawers. Keep in mind, the chest of drawers is not very high, standard four-drawer size, and my room has thick carpet. During the night, I woke up to the sound of glass shattering. As I lay there, feeling my heart beat in my chest and wondering what the heck I had heard, I started wondering if I had dreamt the noise and woke up because of that, because the house was silent. 
so I eventually calmed down and went back to sleep. My alarm went off and I turned to put my feet down on the left side of the bed My flip-flops were waiting for my feet. I had my feet in my shoes in the dark before I reached out my left hand and switched on the bedside lamp. And that is when I got a bit of a shock. Less than half an inch from my right foot, on the carpet, stood the base of the glass I had drank medicine from. There was an immensely sharp shard of glass sticking right up like an inverted dagger right next to my ankle. The glass base was standing upright on the carpet, and all of the glass had shattered right around it. The pieces lay strewn right around the base. How could something like that happen? It made no sense to me. There is not one thing that could explain to me how a glass could have moved off of a chest of drawers, fall perfectly upright to a thick carpet, and shatter in such a way that all the shards except the biggest and sharpest one ended up being scattered right around the base. I went and showed my mom what I had very nearly stepped in, and that's when she told me that something very weird had happened to her during the night as well. She said she became aware that someone had crawled onto the bed with her, and then the person was pinning her to the bed. She said she was still half-dreaming, looking up in the horrible face of a little girl. She said the face was horrible to look at, and she could feel that whatever this thing was, it was malicious and wanted to hurt her or worse. She said she suddenly dreamed that I came walking into her room and the face of the girl changed into that of a normal, pretty little girl. And once I left the room, the face changed again. It shook her around on the bed for a few minutes before it left. She was so rattled. She said by the time the thing started shaking her, she was wide awake and crying. As a result, she has barely slept in the last five days. I noticed that I have scratches on my arms, thin scratches like a cat would give you. And both Thursday and Friday, I had red marks on my neck like pressure marks that just wouldn't go away. Which is strange, we don't have a cat and I know nobody was anywhere near my room. I tried asking Tim for help, and he said to me it sounds like someone brought something dark into the house and it's fixated on me. My mom got off worse, how could it be attached to me? Unfortunately, my avenue to help when it comes to him is closed now. He's blocked off his sight and everything else that goes with his gift as he says it's not God's will for him to see. If that's his way of finding peace, then I'm very happy for him. It's just a bit difficult to navigate unknown waters right now. There's a lot more to come, so keep listening. Want to receive the commercial-free version of Weird Darkness every day? For just $5 per month, you can become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. As a patron, you also get bonus audio, news about the podcast, and more. Click on Become a Patron at WeirdDarkness.com. One of the greatest challenges when dealing with depression is the feeling of hopelessness and that you're alone, that nobody understands. But you're not alone, and there are many, many others who know what you're going through, and they're a couple of clicks away. My friends at ifred.org have partnered with a company called Seven Cups to do their hope training. On the Seven Cups app or website, you can live chat with somebody for free, browse through some of the members to connect individually, 
join a group discussion with others also battling depression, again, for free. There's a lot of support and resources to take advantage of. It has a little bot called Nani to help you get around when you first sign up so you can find everything there is to experience in the Seven Cups app. You can even choose to talk to a professional therapist about your own depression. ifred.org has really outdone themselves on this one. You can find the Seven Cups link at ifred.org. Since hopelessness is the primary symptom of depression, going through ifred.org's HOPE training is a great place to start dealing with hopelessness today, right this moment. Visit ifred.org to find a link to the training and learn more. That's ifred.org. Heidi Weirich's experiences with the paranormal world started when she was just three years old, when Heidi developed an imaginary friend. The ghost of an old man appeared in her backyard, beckoning Heidi to play with him on the swings. The Weirichs had moved into their home in Ellerslie, Georgia, as a young couple with a young daughter, buying a house for the first time. Shortly after the move, Heidi started to make friends with an old man who would come into the yard. When Heidi told her parents about her new friend, they were alarmed and thought that someone was trying to abduct their daughter. After watching Heidi closely, they simply thought Heidi made up an imaginary playmate, as there were no other children in the area for her to play with. The old man appeared in the backyard of her family's Ellerslie home from time to time, and at Heidi's young age, she had no clue he wasn't real. I saw him up until I was eight years old, on an everyday basis, she said. We would sit and have conversations, then he would take me by the hand and we would go and play on the swing. Heidi's mother, Lisa Wyrick, said, I would see her out in the yard and see her hand raised as if holding someone's hand. Many times I would hear her talking but never heard anybody talk back. This playmate is believed to be Mr. Gordy, a man who had died in 1974 and was a prominent landowner in the area. His house was very close to the Wyricks. He's buried in Park Hill Cemetery. Lisa said they finally figured out who Mr. Gordy was when they saw his name on a deed. As Heidi grew older, spirits started coming to her in many different forms – humans, animals, and sometimes figures she could not even explain. I can sense when it's an evil presence or if it's a good presence. If I sense evil, you wouldn't believe the feelings you can get. I've been literally been sick to my stomach," said Heidi. As a parent, you don't know how to deal with it because you don't know how to protect her. If it was someone real, you would know what to do," said her mother. Mr. Gordy is not the only visitor to the Wyrick family. Once a man in a bloodied t-shirt showed up at the front door, his hand bandaged. This was Lon who lived in the area and died in 1952. Lon's spirit was not a friendly spirit like Mr. Gordy. The whole family witnessed paranormal activity in the home, cabinets and doors opening and closing and items moving. Physical attacks also occurred. Andy was attacked four nights in a row. He was left with severe scratches and gouges. Heidi was scratched and has had her hair pulled. Heidi still sees spirits, different ones now. 
One has been of a little girl who reminded Heidi of someone from the TV show Little House on the Prairie. She has seen dark spirits with no faces. The ones she sees now she does not recognize. The media soon picked up on Heidi's story and shined a global spotlight on her and her family. After a Discovery Channel documentary, a book detailing her early years and appearances at paranormal conferences all over the world, many people have connected with Heidi and her struggles. It means so much to me to help people out there who are going through the same thing as me, says Heidi. Even with all the media attention, Heidi has tried to lead as normal a life as possible, eventually getting married to her husband Aaron and starting a career in the medical field. Now 22 years old, Heidi is slowly learning how to deal with her unusual gift. Most of the time I've learned to keep a lot of it to myself and I really don't even notice it. You get used to seeing things after a while, said Heidi. She has since moved from her house in Harris County but she still continues to see visions all over her new home in Columbus. In the late 1950s, Joan Robinson, daughter of Texas businessman Ash Robinson, was the belle of every ball in Houston. She was an excellent horsewoman who earned many trophies and medals at various horse shows in Houston, Texas. Joan was a popular society girl and had many connections, knowing everyone who was worth knowing in Houston during the 50s and 60s. Joan was the only child of her wealthy Texas oilman father, Ash Robinson, and he made sure that his daughter had everything that she wanted. Joan's life was filled with love, admiration, and horses, until one night at a party she met John Hill, who was attending medical school. The two became inseparable and were soon married despite Ash Robinson's gentle protests that Joan had been rather flighty in the past and married twice before the age of 20, with both marriages lasting less than one year. John did not have money when he married Joan, and Ash Robinson agreed to pay for the couple's expenses up until John Hill became Dr. John Hill. Ash made it possible for the young couple to live in the manner that his daughter was accustomed to. The Hills had a son in 1960 during John's first year of residency. Ash Robinson doted on his grandson the same way in which he doted on Joan. He engaged a diaper service, a private nurse, and just about everything under the sun. By this time, people were beginning to notice what a mismatch Joan and John really were, and questions that had been on the minds of all who knew them were now being openly discussed. Joan was happy and open, while John seemed overly private, unhappy, and complex. Was John Hill a gold digger? Did he charm Joan in order to make life in medical school easier? These questions would soon be answered. If he loved Joan, he would pamper her and respect Ash for making his dreams a reality. But if he were a gold digger, he would likely meet another woman and dump Joan cold. John did indeed meet a woman named Anne Kurth while out with his son. Anne was a great beauty and a very conniving woman to boot who had three sons with her when she met John for the first time. An affair began instantly, 
with Ann Kurth's sights being set on acquiring all that was owned by Joan Robinson Hill. The two had actually attended school together and Anne was well aware of Joan's position with high society. She felt that she was inferior to Joan and wanted John to prove to her that she was better than Joan by leaving her. In the years after John had become a physician, he had become more irritated with the Robinson family in general and wanted to distance himself from them. And now, with the stress of his new mistress, he was spending very little time with Joan and his son. Joan had at some point discovered he was having an affair and told her father. Together, they tried to put a stop to it, but Anne was extremely cunning and began tormenting John with threats of seeing other men and had John emotionally off balance. He would run to Anne and stay with her while Joan was left alone. Joan did everything to please John and went on a self-improvement program. She changed her style of clothes and straightened her hair. She didn't need much help in the looks department as she had been blessed naturally with movie star quality glamour. John made an effort to give her more time, while Anne fumed angry at what she considered to be a slight to her charms. On Valentine's Day, John gave Anne the works with candy, a bracelet, and wads of cash, and his wife received nothing. Now Joan was both livid at John for staying out all night and hurt by his choosing someone else. She was now sleeping in late, which concerned her maid as Joan was usually an early riser. She had become very ill, and her father, mother, and Jean were all waiting on her as she lay around listlessly. On one morning, John gave her a glass of orange juice that she just couldn't keep down, and this continued through the evening. Eunice, their concerned maid, asked Dr. John Hill what was wrong, and John replied that she had a virus and then went off to work. Hours later, Joan was dead at the age of 38. It is believed today that it could have been toxic shock poisoning, which no one knew anything about in the 1960s, but Ash believed that John Hill and Ann Kurth killed his daughter together. Ash got the best lawyers that money could buy, and the case ended in a mistrial. After the trial, Ash made threats at John and swore that he would get even. There was another trial scheduled for one year later, but John was ambushed and shot to death in his home before the court date arrived. He was living with his new wife, Connie, and his son, who were both left unharmed. There were more civil suits brought by John Hill's mother and Anne Kurth. Anne went on to write a self-serving book, Prescription Murder, in which she accused John of killing Joan and then trying to murder her. The story became a bestseller called Blood and Money by Thomas Thompson and later a TV movie called Murder in Texas with Farrah Fawcett playing Joan Robinson. The Flannan Isles are a group of rocky, uninhabited islands in Scotland. They're named for Saint Flannan, but they are also known as the Seven Hunters. One of the largest of these seven islands is a rocky, cliff-edged island known as Eileen Moor. Eileen Moor has a grassy hilltop at its apex. Perched atop this grassy hill is a lighthouse that's known as the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. 
The Flannan Isles Lighthouse was the scene of three mysterious disappearances roughly one year after it was built. Three men vanished from the lighthouse without a trace. There was no sign of a disturbance and very few clues to the nature of their fate. The scene was reminiscent of that aboard the Mary Celeste when her crew and passengers famously disappeared roughly 30 years before. On December 7, 1900, Donald MacArthur, Thomas Marshall, and James Ducott arrived at the Flannan Isles Lighthouse to begin their two-week rotation as keepers of the lighthouse. The superintendent of lighthouses, Robert Muirhead, came with them to do a routine check of the lighthouse and speak to the men. He made certain that everything was in working order and then spoke with James Ducott about some difficulties they were having with the heavy mist that commonly surrounded the island. The men then said goodbye to the superintendent, and he left. The lighthouse was regularly monitored by the mainland by telescope. This way, if there was an emergency, the men could signal for help. Unfortunately, there was the problem with the mist. The lighthouse was seen on December 7th and December 12th. The lighthouse was also seen on December 15th by a passing ship. The crew noted that the light was not shining as it should have been. It was not seen from land again until December 29, well after the men should have ended their rotation. The ship that was to deliver the men's relief and bring them home from the Flannan Islands lighthouse was delayed until December 21st because of a run of bad weather. When the ship, the SS Hesperus, arrived at Eileen Moore, the men on board expected to see a flag flying to indicate that the keepers had noted their arrival and would be deploying a rowboat to retrieve their relief. However, the flag was not flying, nor did the men respond to a siren. A landing craft with two men on board was launched from the SS Hesperus with two men. When the two men reached Eileen Moore, one man, Joseph Moore, went up to check the lighthouse for the three missing men. He found the entrance locked. He unlocked the door and entered to find the Flannan Isles lighthouse unmanned. The clock on the wall had stopped. No fire was in the grate, nor had one been there for a few days. There was a meal sitting at the table. It looked like someone had set it down with the intention of eating it soon, but it was untouched. Whatever happened to the men, it had happened to them suddenly. There was nothing anyone could do about it with so few clues. So four men, including Moore, were left on the island to operate the lighthouse, and everyone else left. The records of the three Flannan Isles lighthouse keepers were subsequently inspected. It was discovered that Eileen Moore was hit with a strong storm on December 14th. The last entry was made in the afternoon of December 15th. Superintendent Muirhead concluded that the men must have been taken by nature when they left the lighthouse to repair some damage that was done to a storage container outside during the storm. One of his theories, the most likely, was that a large wave came up on the men while they were working and swept all three of them into the Atlantic Ocean where they died. Muirhead's theory is largely regarded as truth. The only other alternatives seem to be that the men left of their own accord. They were kidnapped aliens intervened or they were sucked into another dimension, all of which seem ludicrous. Unfortunately, none of their bodies was ever recovered, so there is no way to be sure.
If you liked this episode of Weird Darkness, please share it with your friends and family on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and your other social media, or message them and tell them to give the podcast a listen. Do you have a dark tale to tell of your own? Click on Tell Your Story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. You can find links to the stories or authors featured in this episode in the show notes. Weird Darkness Theme by Manuel Marino Weird Darkness is a registered trademark of Marler House Productions. Copyright Marler House Productions 2019. I'm Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Every day, Comcast Business is helping businesses big and small go beyond the expected to do the extraordinary. Because beyond a simple transaction, there is making a customer for life. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Take your business beyond at ComcastBusiness.com. You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. Well, wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's.